0: Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 251. We're nearing up the end of this year. Getting there. Do you think 2021 is going to be better than 2020?
1: I think it would have to be... uh, Yes. Let's just put it this way. Yes. Like, it would have to try really hard to be worse than
0: 2021. Yeah, I think... Let's knock on wood here. The 2021 like the world will have to end (laughs) 20 2020 has been rough and
1: it'll be nice to see it go
0: yes um so last week we were talking about wiring harnesses and uh i actually posted some of the images from the wiring harnesses i've been working on and immediately got feedback in our slack channel which is awesome Oh, of course but um if you post anything, engineers will tell you their opinion on it. That's ridiculous. exactly. But no, the, the, these are good good things because yep. I wanted to make sure all the specifications that I can put on there are there, mm-hmm. and so that when I send these out, I don't get any you know emails back saying, "Oh, I need X information." Um. So Jason G in the Slack channel said, "I need to add the wire jacket temperature rating because I don't have that." um i guess that's whatever temperature the the jacket gets soft at because i think i've seen it's like 85 c or 100 c or 125 c c is in celsius for <laughs> americans what else would it be <laughs> uh cats cats yeah. <laughs> i got a 125 degrees cat rating <laughs> So, so, okay, wait. Wire jacket, temperature rating,
1: and then the number of strands is the yeah, next or, one,
0: right? I liked how he put it, which was uh, wire strandedness," <laughs> <laughs> which actually is a real word. Uh, at least Google didn't complain about it. <laughs> so
1: <clears throat>
0: I, I I think now, – now, didn't you provide the part
1: number of the wire that you wanted to use?
0: No, I did not, which is – what he suggests is to go find wire that you'd like and just put that, say, that part number or equivalent. Got it. Okay. I thought you put the
1: part number because if you put the part number, then you don't need to include this information. Correct. In fact, it gets confusing if you put this information and the part number.
0: Yeah. So I think I'm going to actually remove my wire specs besides like the 18 gauge um, and what kind of type it is. And then just put a part number that's what I want or equivalent. Because I don't really care what brand it is.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think that's one of the most powerful words in engineering drawings is "or equivalent." <laughs> or equivalent. Because it just like absolves you from going and searching for other things. <laughs> <laughs> we used to actually have um uh at my first company we were ISO nine thousand and one and we had policies around the words "or equivalent," and and most of the time the policies were include that if you can just because uh it, it ends up being a convenient loophole in uh, in iso 9001 especially on bill of materials if you have a bill of materials and you put like a very specific resistor part number if you're playing by the rules you wrote that part number that's the part number you said you were going to use but if you put that part number or equivalent then that just opens up the whole world worth of parts yeah
0: you know, this inductor at 100 megahertz frequency is like this 10-ohm resistor, thus its equivalent.
1: Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, That's actually something I've I've had some experiences in the past uh, that have been somewhat annoying. Like when you send out drawings or bill of materials, and you put very specific part numbers on it, and then what you get back is clearly not what you you got the or equivalent yeah you got yeah they assumed that part of it and that's a little annoying like frankly i in it's my opinion that uh draw engineering drawings are biblical truth to the engineer like if it's on there it must be done if it's not on there you don't assume it
0: yeah yeah i agree i like that the B- biblical truth. <laughs> it's it's straight up scripture. Yeah, if, you, if you if you if you vary from the engineering drawing, you turn into sand.
1: <laughs>
0: a pillar of salt. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. It's a pillar of salt. That's what it is. I got my I got my mythologies messed up there. <laughs> um, and Then he also mentions uh, Jason G mentions uh, labeling requirements, which I don't think I need any labeling not labeling the the wires they're just it's just a generic harness um but then treatment to pigtail end I guess this is if you want like the pigtail ends like pre the jacket sliced you know so you can pull it off or um stripping the wires I just want it plain cut
1: but do you, do you want the do you want the stranded wires tinned though so like that's also treatment to the end uh, no
0: I just want just the just cut right Just through. bare wire yeah because it's gonna be cut the length in The pinball machine um so each wire is actually going to be probably eventually trimmed to length in the machines um so i don't know i guess you just call out just what what do you do bare end no just call just
1: call out a note and write what you want on the end it that you know that's actually okay that brings up another uh thing I, i i feel like there's like this classic way of doing engineering drawings where people think you have to use like really specific words and verbs yeah. and stuff like and there's like a very specific way to say everything and it seems almost like super academic and in reality it's a drawing is literally a piece of paper that show someone how you want something done so you can you can just write things on it you know like put in your notes section i would like the ends of these wires to be cut flat or whatever i don't know like it doesn't have to be super specific words as long as you get the
0: point across well that's also my problem it's hard to get the point across out of my brain well
1: sure but but what i'm saying is like (laughs) there may be like a very specific textbook way of saying how to do that or you can just write a sentence saying how to do that
0: and then Rojas. I guess I need, just need to put Rojas on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have to worry about it. Um, because this stuff is probably only going to be sold in the United States. But there's no reason it has to be leaded. And also, but the, if I call out a wire. And I'm already calling out the part numbers I'm using. Which are Rojas compliant. It doesn't really matter. But let's just. I guess put it on there and just make sure that whoever's building it doesn't have lead on their hands i guess
1: if you don't put it on there you're gonna get a cable that's just covered in lead and cadmium and mercury and it's just super heavy and it's like oh i didn't put the note on there
0: they dipped (laughs) it in lead they dipped it in lead no it just came in lead packaging
1: yeah it's like it's like a cable that weighs a few grams and it's in like 10 pounds of a lead box
0: yeah So I got, I'm going to update, I'm going to put a, a part number, probably like an alpha wire part number, which is what, uh, Jason, um, suggested. And then I will put a, a note for the pigtail end because I did do like a detailed and it just shows it being cut. But yeah, I put a note there that just says, Hey, it's just cut ends. And then, uh, I'll just slap a little Rojas on there. Should be good to go. Maybe next week I'll have some quotes to share with people. See how much these things actually cost.
1: How, it's much you, like, how much do you think they're going to cost? Uh,
0: the components are like really inexpensive. Like you're talking like 10 cents for the connector and like a penny for the the terminals. And then they they got to get crimped. And I'm going to order enough. They're probably going to use an auto crimper for it. Um, I've actually never quoted this stuff out before, so I have no idea. I'm going to get numbers back and be like, uh, Stephen, are these good? I had no idea.
1: <laughs> you know, like, I mean, with any of these things, you're right. Most of the raw materials are just pennies. So, you know, almost all the cost is in labor
0: and shipping. Yeah, it's in labor, shipping, and the copper. Because these are like six feet long leads.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could I could tell you I got quotes for... I don't remember. I think it was 250 pieces of five different cable assemblies, and the cable assemblies were much more complex than yours. And all five put together were less than twenty dollars in quantity 250. Uh, So
0: I have high hopes. So
1: I would I would you know divide that by five, and you're like four bucks of a cable assembly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now that's not state stateside. Multiply that times four (laughs) and then you're at stateside.
0: Well, I actually, I have a couple suppliers here in states and then I have a a Taiwan factory or place that I'm going to quote through as well. So That's also, if people didn't catch that in the last couple podcasts, the Pentar project is completely not China. And so the harnesses I'd like to not make in China as well. So we'll see how far I can get.
1: It's been an interesting...
0: interesting project so far is basically like actually having to care about where you're sourcing stuff from
1: the the, the those cable quotes i got were taiwan okay yeah so you could sort of expect that too yeah generally that range i've also gotten small ribbon cable assemblies in like a thousand quantity maybe two thousand quantity and they were like 19 cents a piece or something like that for a ribbon cable with two ends on it
0: yeah i've done the ribbon cables before but never this i mean we're talking like 18 gauge 10 conductor molex parts different colors all kinds of different color yeah that's the only thing is i want different colors for each so it's
1: actually crimped ends that have to be pushed inside of a connector that kind of yeah
0: yeah and the thing is though is i'm going to i'm just going to get them done in bulk and then it's going to be on the user whoever buys the board or whatever too remove a pin and put a blank, a plug pin in cause our, our boards are, are polarized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, cause they are 10 pin connectors with one pin removed so you can key it. Cause there's, you know, like eight of the same pin. It's like, how do you make sure you don't plug the wrong one to wrong one key it? Um, but having 12, no, it'd be like 15 different skews for cables for a board. I'm like, no, let's just build one that fits everything, and then you just pull the key out and then put a plug in it. It makes it easier.
1: You're relying on the user to be able to do that?
0: I mean, the user is a manufacturer, so I hope they can do that.
1: Oh, well, I get, yeah, I guess you're right. I get, you're no, right.
0: the end user is not the person buying a pinball
1: machine. Uh, for some reason, I was I was thinking it that way. I was like, nah, I don't know if that's a good idea. No, Parker. no, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. The end user is a manufacturer, an OEM. Right. Okay, somebody who's going to be,
1: you know, knee-deep in wiring harnesses already.
0: Already, yeah. And these are more of like the generic ones that you buy when you're first starting out. And then when you're done with your design, you take the harness out and measure the lengths and get them all cut to length from the get-go. And then you can do all your plugs then and get them built that way.
1: Yeah, and if you say you get a client that's big enough, you could always make them a custom cable through your people who yep. that has everything cut to length and stripped or whatever exactly but you know maybe if there's quantity like 500 then you would do that
0: yes yes, yes. that's the idea very cool so raspberry Pi ubuntu stories continued C- continued yeah and
1: still sort of in the same place but uh a lot more uh, pseudo's and Nanos available. How now.
0: frustrated are you right now? You know, <clears throat> what's your level?
1: One I, intrigued is probably a better word than frustrated, because I was trying to do something on a system that I don't know much about. I was trying to do something that isn't necessarily supported, so I was being quite ridiculous on this. Regardless, so so here, here's what here's what happened. I went through probably five different methods of trying to get ERP Next installed on a Raspberry Pi. And all of them failed for one reason or another. I, I think I dumped maybe 15 or 20 hours into this. So I put some serious time into this. Um, and I actually had a buddy do it with me. And and we just kinda, we beat our head on a table. And, and and a lot of the problems ended up being that ERP Next is not necessarily designed to run on uh, an ARM processor. And, uh, and a lot of the software packages that run under the hood kind of complain about that, but there's workarounds, but there's not, and all, whatever. So it was a fun little experiment, and I got a Raspberry Pi 4 out of it, and I got, <laughs> and I learned a lot about Linux and um, Ubuntu. Uh, so actually, what, it, what is really kind of it's a bad thing, I should say. It, what it's really kind of got me wanting to do now is use a Raspberry Pi for something else. It's like, really play around with it. Because it's fun, like it's actually a lot of fun to get into it, uh, like get under the hood. So uh, I was not successful with getting ERP Next installed on my Pi, but I did the next thing, which is actually, I mean, it takes two seconds. I just went to ERP Next and got the 14 day trial.
0: And, oh the, the cloud version
1: yeah yeah i just went and got the cloud version which the cloud version is 50 bucks a month uh which is not expensive in terms of if, it's not if, cheap
0: but not expensive if
1: you've ever looked at erp systems that's as cheap as it gets let's just put it that way but for an open source uh basically what you're paying for is just the cloud storage you're not paying for the actual uh software in a way you're corporate. paying for them to maintain it on their end. Exactly. So I actually got into ERP Next and started playing with it, uh, just in the cloud system, and it's actually super cool. I really, really like it. Um, I think ERP Next is one of those ones where, if if I had the time to like actually build a Linux computer and do it properly, I, I might uh, set up a, a server that's not a Raspberry Pi for for this thing because you could do so much personal stuff with it like you could run all of your projects in it you could do all of your bill of materials in it you could do your own personal accounting in it uh even if you're not trying to run a business it's helpful for a lot of those things it's so it's a full erp system that uh is kind of open-ended and i and and in a way i like that where everything is user defined i mean it's unbelievable how much you can user define anything in that so if you create a product or a thing in it you can define virtually everything about that uh even down to like how do you measure this thing's units like am i buying 30 milliliters of this liquid or am i buying in units of each or do you have your own units you can you can create your own unit of measurement and Steven meters. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, and, and every (laughs) little module that's inside of it is configurable in that way. And so it's a little bit daunting because it allows you to just set up your own environment. Like it doesn't have predefined rules. You just create everything the way you want it and you build all the dependencies the way you want them to be. And so it makes, it makes you run your, projects or your system or your business however you want and i kind of like that uh I, I guess if i was running a business i probably wouldn't actually like that i would want something that's already pre-built so i wouldn't waste my time making all these systems but for me sitting in my basement having fun with uh, an erp system I thought that would be cool because I was I was thinking about like all the projects that I have lying around and money that I have stored up in projects. And I was like, if I have an ERP system, I know this is ridiculous. People are probably rolling their eyes right now. But like if I have these kinds of things where I can say like, oh, here's my inventory of projects and here's my inventory of parts that go with my projects, that would be really cool. So
0: then your wife can audit how much your projects are costing.
1: Only if I give her the login information. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's why when you said, "Oh, I have all this money in parts," and I'm like looking around at all my Jeep parts and tools, and I'm like, uh, "That's something I never want to think about ever." <laughs>
1: Actually, no, no. What I would totally do, I would, I would turn to my wife and I would be like, "You can audit anything you want. You first have to learn Linux to get into it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good way to, uh, to you know, kind of, uh, what's it called them bury your money into projects and then just hide them in, in your system or or i guess I, I i would i would be laundering my money into into all of my projects but through an
0: but through an os <laughs> through
1: no <an OS>, yeah <laughs> from my wife yeah yeah so i don't know it's it's pretty cool you know it's funny uh, with with all of the all of the capabilities that ERP Next has there's one thing that uh, is kind of lacking And I'm so surprised ERPNext doesn't have official revisioning, which for something like running a business, especially a manufacturing business, there's nothing on there that says like, this part is Rev A. This part is rev That's B. like
0: the most important thing. Okay, for me, that's like the most important thing.
1: <laughs> I agree. For me, like this, that's almost that's pretty much to the point where I'm not going to use this, uh, even just for fun, just because it doesn't have rev A and rev B. It doesn't have revisioning. And in, do in you that just make it a different sense. skew? I think. No, I don't. I don't fully know because I haven't dove deep enough into it. But I think what they're the concept is if you create because it's so customizable and because it's so like you set up everything the way you want it to be. I think the way they have it set up was if you create a new revision, you just create that revision from scratch every time you create a revision. So that means if you're creating a new revision of a part within with where you roll the bomb, you have to, you have to import the bomb fresh from scratch with the changes and then if you make a new revision from that it's not like it doesn't adopt anything from the previous revision you just do it from scratch and you name it rev b Mm -hmm. rev c and i get that there's some kind of a purity behind that that means everything is individual and unique nothing is tied together unless you say it's tied together uh but i think that also um invites a significant amount of error and chances for error yes it does i want to i want to adopt want, the good it, things from the previous revision and get rid of the bad things
0: you want to iterate improvements
1: right right
0: yeah that's
1: um no the the, the weakest link in the chain is me by far exactly
0: yes <laughs> yeah so um that's all i really like about github and stuff because that's what that's how github works is it it only records you put the original in, and then you record changes after that. Um,
1: I mean, GitHub would allow you to do what I'm saying, too.
0: No, no. I'm saying from revision history kind of stuff, that's how GitHub works. I'm not saying use GitHub for hardware because it actually kind of sucks. But <laughs> I'm saying that's how it works is it works on a change basis. And that's actually interesting is how the that's how the MacroFab platform works, too,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is when you upload all your main stuff – um that's the original stuff and then all the changes you make it only records the changes of of the of what was changed and so that you can click um it's like a little little clock symbol in the interface and you click it and you can compare different revisions that are in that the platform is recorded for you um you pretty know cool uh, stuff
1: the, something that would be really fun uh this would be really great if you wanted to come do a a future podcast with there's two stat numbers. I would love to hear about just for fun. First of all, don't write these down. What is, what is the project? You don't have to say what the actual project is obviously, but which project has the most number of revisions and how far down the line is it? Is it like 10 revisions down the line? Is it like 800 revisions down the line? And then, The second thing is, what's the oldest active project on MacFab? Which one is like, it was entered in a long time ago, and it's still being made today?
0: Yeah, like, or just the longest span between like first revision and last revision. Sure, yeah. Yeah, which it might be weird, because we only started doing the revision stuff like two years ago, but it would be fun to see, oh, you could do like, when a PCB was created and like the longest between PCB and the last order that used that PCB. Yeah. Because then that's technically still active.
1: Well, I what I wonder is like, Ooh. are there people who entered in a PCB five years ago and are still just clicking buy on that same PCB?
0: I know that answer is yes. Because those pop up and I'm like, oh, that's just, that's old. Wow. <laughs> that's way <laughs> old. And then I'm like, wait, I'm still at this company still. <laughs> I mean, still Oh Seven years man Knocked yeah. over uh, We already said that On the podcast A couple episodes ago so.
1: But yeah like Getting getting no, That would be fun Just to know Like Who has Not who You can't say who But Some board it's out there actually It's actually whom Some board out there <laughs> Holds the record For the most revisions How many revisions Is that
0: Yeah Yeah I don't think a lot of people Pay attention too much To the revision system In Macrofab Because it's like you can only see it by clicking that history button because it's different from versions. Because versions are what you make when you want to make like a clone or change the PCB. But like revisions is like your iterative changes. Like oh, I need to change a part or change a specification, and then it will record that change as a new revision. So,
1: well, I I always felt that when I was working at MacroFab, a lot of the, a lot of the way MacroFab was being used was oh, I need a board. Go to Macrofab, load everything up, press buy, and then forget about Macrofab for two weeks. And then, (laughs) no, no, seriously. Yeah, no, you're right. then it arrives, and then it's like, oh, Macrofab. I remember that now. But I'm sure sure it's evolved quite a bit since I was there, now where there are people who are logging in almost daily and checking uh, information and using Macrofab as more of their day-to-day system as opposed to just when I need to order a board. Correct. It has...
0: Because back then, it was we just did printed circuit boards, PCBA. Right. Now we do a lot more. Now yeah, you so do yeah, system right.
1: support as a whole yep. thing. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, previously, it wasn't the purchasing manager who was the one logging on to MacFab all the time. It was the engineer logging on to MacFab and buying their boards. Mm. Now you can give your information to your purchasing manufacturer. Or uh I mean purchasing manager, and they do the purchasing at MagFab. yeah, which that was that was always a long term goal at MagFab.
0: yeah, or we still do the engineering stuff too it's just we do both now
1: well there there was there was different tools set up for different yeah. users it's like a
0: different world over there <laughs> purchasing managers what do they even do? I don't know buy stuff. Actually, a pr- Just give a, me a credit card. A good
1: purchasing man. Uh, uh, gosh, why do I keep saying manufacturer? Purchasing manager uh, is invaluable. Like those guys, sure. they they sweet talk their way into buying stuff at prices that you can't even believe.
0: Yeah, uh, you're saying purchasing manufacturer, and I'm like, hey, is that the federal government printing money? Hey,
1: <laughs> welcome to the MacFab <laughs> engineer.
0: We make lame political jokes. We make awful jokes
1: and laugh about everything. Yes. All right. What's next? We somehow
0: got there from Raspberry Pi Four, but whatever. (laughs) This is a meandering podcast. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next topic is the uh, untold story of a bug that almost sank the Dreamcast North American launch.
1: I feel really bad for the for the one character in this story. Just because yes, you um, know the stress was like through the roof.
0: Oh, through the roof! Yeah, um, so the Dreamcast. So let's do, let's, let's wind back the time clock. So the Dreamcast was Sega's last. Was Official. Sega is a is a uh, manufacturer a hard- hardware and oh, was a hardware software manufacturer for video games, and the Dreamcast was kind of like their last hurrah because they the previous console was the Saturn. It was not received well, did not sell well. And so this was kind of like their last hurrah of building a console, video game console to, um, retake ground from Nintendo. And at the time PlayStation was starting to come out. Um, and so there was a, apparently a interesting bug in the hardware layout for the Dreamcast, but only in the North American version, which I thought was really weird that they made a completely different board revision inside the Dreamcast because on the outside, they look the same to me.
1: They Well, I think they were the same uh, external, but I believe with power management and things like that, they changed the board. Yeah. So they changed everything.
0: Yeah, but so this, this story is not much about the bug, but like the story of how they found the bug or figured it out because it was a it was only with certain games and it was completely random like they were dumping all the debug states and all that stuff and it would just happen when like weird like it just randomly happened and apparently what it was was the audio IC that's inside the Dreamcast had a floating input pin on the North American version and it was pulled to ground in the um japanese version and see that's the thing that i was getting at was why would that change why would the audio circuit change between those two versions of the hardware
1: yeah i don't know it must have been something about the data sheet for that audio ic recommended something or, or whatever like yeah you would think that they would just adopt the exact same Maybe. pcb and only make the changes they needed to
0: yeah, exactly. I I would say that you would only do the changes you need to, but basically somehow in whatever version maybe it was it was originally floating and they saw the probably the footnote of this thing that says, "Hey, you should probably ground this pin out." And they got changed in a revision that didn't get pushed to the other version.
1: I that that makes a lot of sense actually. Because
0: because you, you're probably right. There's probably a split between because I think Jap, Japanese main lines is they're one twenty volt, but they're like fifty hertz, or is that somewhere else?
1: I uh, I believe they're fifty hertz, but also some of the uh, some part of the country actually runs on DC.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
1: but they they're fifty hertz. Yeah.
0: And I don't know if the Dreamcast has an external power supply or not, which would completely throw out this theory that we're having. It does not. It has internal. Okay, so...
1: I was one of those cool kids that bought a Dreamcast
0: back in the (laughs) day. And got to play like four video games. No,
1: I had I had a I had a catalog. Like the Dreamcast was legit. You had Crazy Taxi. I, you know actually that was one that I did not have. I what? Didn't... That's the one everyone had. A crazy Taxi <laughs> was was fun. I did play it, but I I did never actually own it. No, I had Sonic Adventure One and Sonic Adventure Two. Uh, I was an RPG kid, so I had Skies of Arcadia.
0: Oh, that's why you had a Sega then. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Like I, Evolution, I had I don't know I had some cool games on that. I, okay, so, so
0: that's our working theory now, though, is because of the power differences, there was a split somewhere in the hardware line, and then this hardware bug got fixed uh, down the line, and it didn't make its way back over to the other part of the branch. That's right. the theory we just came up with. Probably not right. But it actually would make sense, and it's kind of the simplest solution of why that would happen. Um, but anyways, so this floating input pin—why does it matter? Because a lot of times you can just leave input pins floating, and it doesn't really matter. Well, it was the MIDI input pin to this audio IC, and if it—and this audio IC—if it detected MIDI on that pin, it would flip to the MIDI mode. Well, the Dreamcast didn't have a MIDI mode, and so it would just crash the software immediately. <laughs> And it could happen randomly. And it would happen randomly. Basically, whatever random noise would look like midi code, it would trip this IC. Right. And so they fixed it by... This is the interesting is they fixed it by re, by patching the software. Because it was too... I'm going to bet you is... Because this is a CD. CDs are dirt cheap to reprint compared to having to open up a couple million dreamcasts and solder a wire. Well, okay,
1: and and in particular, uh, yeah, exactly, if you have to solder a wire, that's game over. Uh, and and by the way, in this story, this was this was found out and solved by one individual. Yes. That's why I was saying earlier is like god, this must have been super stressful and and i don't remember exactly how it played out but like this this individual was trying to get help from someone else and that person was like ah, later i'm going on vacation this sounds yeah. like a you problem you
0: know? Yeah, that was
1: <laughs> that's douchey that's oh so yeah gosh cost- i yeah but so this one individual this uh, let's call him a hero is is uh, the name's bird bird oh, yeah, okay bird was uh responsible for making sure that dreamcast launched on time and and apparently it had to do specifically with game with midway games games made by midway which they were involved in launch titles for the dreamcast so uh it would have been a massive embarrassing failure if they launched this entire uh new system and it could randomly fail that uh when
0: the moon was in some polarity with the earth
1: well i'm sure okay so that floating pin was high z so any kind of em noise that just happens to float by and just trigger whatever gates are on that pin it's game over right yeah so they basically rewrote a portion of the driver that accesses
0: this chip and uh, and told it to effectively ignore that yeah don't do not never flip into midi mode never right <laughs> crazy yeah.
1: Actually, I don't know. Uh, I, I I read a little bit of the article, but I, I don't think I read it intently enough to know this. Did they fix the firmware on the PCB, or did they fix all game it,
0: software? It was the games that were affected. Oh,
1: okay. So yeah. technically, it could still affect other games if they didn't implement this.
0: Correct. But they fixed the driver that was on the CDs. There. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so
1: this driver was probably provided in all the developer kits and said it, it, it probably in the uh, in comment somewhere, don't change this code. You know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they basically had to throw away a couple million CDs and reprint them. Mm. But yeah, it's interesting to think about like a bunch of CDs is cheaper than soldering a little tiny little wire.
1: You know, okay, I think there's one thing to learn about this in terms of, like, uh, development and design work, even if if you know what a pin state is supposed to be, I think it is worthwhile to both configure that in hardware and in software. Like, at the beginning of your code, have pin-defined states for your entire processor or whatever your stuff is. Don't ever make assumptions about that. And wherever necessary if not everywhere if you can uh, apply that in hardware and then you avoid these kinds of issues because adding of you know I know this is a completely different scale if we're talking about millions of units shipped a resistor does end up making uh, a difference in the cost of things and if you're going to a price point you don't want to apply tons of hardware Extra hardware that isn't necessary, but if if your if your quantity allows for it, have your pull ups and your pull downs that do matter uh, everywhere, and make sure that your code has pin state definitions for everything, because you want to initialize into a state that you are one hundred percent comfortable with, right? I don't know. Design
0: tips. I wonder if we get. I wonder what John Bird did over there. Reworld experience. I'm actually on his website right now. <laughs> if you look at, if if you look at like his to... resume,
1: it says Saved the Dreamcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, he's the kind of unsung heroes that are behind the scenes. And I'm I'm not trying to get gushy here or anything like that, but like if you're going to become an engineer these are the kinds of things that you get assigned to you and you do deal with these kinds of things and you don't get any praise for that like the the community the um, the video game community doesn't come out and say like this guy saved everything it's just like well you know he's an engineer like you you fixed the problem good luck or good job here's the next one you know
0: so he worked at 3do
1: oh did he really yeah, yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to go uh, read up more about John Bird. Let's get him on the podcast.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun. All right. All right, cool. What's next? So uh, I I just got some cool uh, repairs that I have on my bench right now that I want to talk about. And one of the reasons I want to talk about them is because the service manuals are great for these. I love them. So I actually have a Roland TR-606. It's a drum matrix, which the way they have it printed on the actual unit is a, like, one-word drum matrix. And it's just, like, a little, like, Beatbox drum box that like dramatics,
0: drama- yeah. <laughs> right? Something like that. <laughs> uh, I'll put it this way: if I saw that, that's how I would pronounce it because there's no space.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I need to look up how it's actually spelled. But uh, so I've got yeah Roland TR six hundred six little drum machine on there, and then I also have a Korg Poly six like full keyboard synth on my on my bench, and I'm gonna be cracking these things open here. I think on Thursday uh and and i'm i want to take a bunch of pictures of them so uh i'm gonna post a whole bunch of stuff and the progress on the slack channel so if you want to see the guts of these things if you're one of those guys that just likes to see old vintage electronics and stuff uh check out the slack channel i'm gonna be posting the repair jobs as i go along uh, Ooh, i also have schematics. i have both of the service manuals for these things and they're like the old school service manuals that are all like photocopied in and none of the
0: pages are straight
1: no no everything is crooked as hell and you can see the creases in the paper it's just oh they're gorgeous and i'm sure if you could smell them they probably smell like butt and they're just awesome i love these old (laughs) service manuals and in fact the service manual for the korg poly 6 the last page is like handwritten scribbled words that you can't even read and phone numbers and yeah. like what like why did somebody like who had this was like well i'm gonna include this page too like why i don't know there's just some names and some phone numbers and i i love this old stuff you should call them yeah just find out who
0: it is they're uh, international numbers are they yeah i
1: don't know i thought they, they i thought they looked american uh
0: well, no they're international. so so
1: this this Roland TR 606 this drum matrix is actually a pretty cool feat of engineering because it's pretty compact and it's small it's all through hole and it's multi layer multi PCB layers uh, all like crammed together I'll take some pictures and put it up on the slack channel um it's just looking at it, be like, oh my God, like some poor engineer had to sit there and stack all of this up. It's just a nest of wires and PCBs folding in over each other all through hole. And there's something kind of beautiful about it, but also a nightmare. And that one right now, like, so it functions, but everything triggers together. So when you try to trigger, you know, the kick drum it triggers all the drums. So it's just, if you listen to it, it's just like, boom, like everything goes off at once. So hopefully I'm, I'm just hoping that that's somewhat of a trigger bus issue that obviously somehow like the processors, everything's getting cross talked in a way. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't really cracked it open yet. i well, will do that on Thursday, but I'm, I'm hoping it's something simple where it's just the, like, everything got mixed together somehow and all the triggers are getting sent at once there's
0: a cockroach decomposing on the circuit board somewhere i've had that happen that's a true (laughs) i know that's why i brought it up
1: (laughs) yeah uh and then with the the korg poly six i'm just doing some cleaning up and a and a recal which the recal on these old uh service manuals are they're just fun to follow because they're usually pretty easy um but it it feels like you're i don't know Hacking something crazy. So, uh, check it out Thursday evening time, mountain time. I'll be posting a whole bunch of stuff as I go along on that.
0: I can't wait. I'll be following along. Awesome. So, I got another weird uh, article I found. Or, this is not really an article. This is a product I found that's uh, for sale. It's the BL6. The coolest asterisk console ever actually I just noticed I have two video gamey style articles Um, but this is a a six pack of beer like a what would be like a cardboard carrier for a six pack of beer but it is not it's a transformer more that meets the eye it's got a projector in it and two raspberry pies so you can play video games and drink cold beer at the same time Why can you drink cold beer? Because it actively cools your beer down.
1: (laughs) And it looks like a six-pack of beer.
0: Yes. Um, I think the... Let's see. (laughs) The the, the (laughs) BL6,
1: it says one half koozie, one half projector, and one half gaming console.
0: Yeah. So um, it's it's actually an auction. I think they only built one of these. and uh, it's being donated. The, the proceeds are going to the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation uh, program, I guess. I don't know too much about that. But um, it's also by Budweiser. Oh, but this this my, is
1: actually Anheuser-Busch that is
0: doing this. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But um, what I wanted to point out is I kind of like the, like whoever, I want to see this in real life. Cause it like the attention to detail on this thing is amazing. Like it has like a blue band all the way around the bottom that lights up, it, and like I want to see how like the build of this because it looks really cool. It's
1: very clean. Like whoever yes. did it did an excellent job.
0: But the my the, this this part right here is six built-in games. Like like wait what like like <laughs> the. But six built-in games like Tekken 7, Soul Calibur 6, uh, and RBI Baseball 20. And I'm like, you listed three out of six games. Why not just list the other three? And what is like? Is it like it's a game like Tekken 7? Also,
1: if those are the three games that you're like, Mm. you know, showcasing, I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I really want this. (laughs)
0: But it's, it's two, console, uh, two controllers included, two built-in koozies that actually keep your beer cold. I bet you they're using automotive butt coolers. Maybe. ABCs. Oh, we got to talk about that too real quick. Uh, oh, we'll talk about it probably next week. Uh, Chris Gamble's got a new thing called ABC uh, with this contextual electronics stuff. I don't know too much about it. I just saw a tweet about it a couple days ago. or not? No, yesterday. What's it supposed to be? Um, I don't... Not automatic butt coolers. No, it's not... I I was actually... That was funny enough. That was the first thing I thought, though. Was, like, automotive butt coolers. But, um... No, it's a modular prototyping system, I think. Oh, okay. I don't want to put too many words in my mouth because I don't really know besides the pictures I saw on Twitter. Um, But, yeah. The BL6. um, I'd like... I really wanted to see the build. Like, a... Build, like a thirty-minute-long build video of this, I'd be like all over.
1: Nice. So, the, nice. is there only one of them? I think there's only one of them. It has six days, thirteen hours, fifty minutes, and forty-six seconds left to go, and there are thirty-seven bids on it, and it is two thousand and seventy-one dollars.
0: Yeah. Interesting, interesting project. I really, I want to see the build log on that, just like how it works and how they built the chassis because it looks really good oh that's cool like
1: okay so the controllers slide into little like foam uh, holders and then a beer can slides over them to conceal them
0: yeah there's a lot of attention to detail with this build yeah
1: although two beers one for you and one for your buddy is nowhere near enough
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i think you can put four beers in it oh okay
1: but it, but it may only have two active cooling spots. Yes, so you so have, you to, have pull to cycle out and swap them. over. <laughs>
0: yeah, cycle. That's great. Okay, so before we wrap up, um we're going to have Ben Jordan of Autodesk on the podcast. I think we we're going to do it the week after Thanksgiving, which would be the 1st of December. I think that might be right. Or it's next week. I don't remember. That's actually really important. I should look that up.
1: <laughs> we'll put it in the Slack channel.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll look it up live. We'll do it live. I should. We should say what we what day we're actually going to be doing it on. Um, duh, 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 duh. Tuesday after Thanksgiving, so December first. Okay. Um, so the podcast episode will come out December second. Um, so why is this important? Well, Ben is a. Uh, the project manager, a product manager, and is responsible for the Eagle product over at Autodesk. And so get your Eagle questions in Slack early so I can add them to the list and get them ahead to Ben um, beforehand. This is Mr. Eagle himself. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Eagle. <laughs> Little top hat.
1: <laughs> yeah, throw your, throw your questions in the Slack channel and uh, we'll sift through them and maybe it'll get on the show.
0: And that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast.
1: Oh, do you have anything else, Stephen? That was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts,
0: Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolan. Take it easy. Later, everyone. I guess that was the end.